can be seated. This morning we are coming to the end of the first half of the gospel according to John, what is known as the book of signs, chapters 1 through 12. And we've just finished that great chapter on Lazarus being raised from the dead, the sign of Jesus's power and victory over death. And that sign, that miracle has increased the conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders of the day. And we're told in verse 53 of chapter 11 that they have now made plans to put Jesus to death. Amidst this tension, Jesus enters into Jerusalem with great fanfare. And then he gives his final public addresses in the latter half of chapter 12. And we're dealing with the first of these today in verses 20 through 36. From this point forward in the gospel, Jesus only addresses his father, his disciples in the upper room discourse, those who directly confront him in the trial. And then after, and then on the cross, he addresses his mother and the beloved disciple. And then after his resurrection, he addresses his disciples once more, commissioning them for the mission at hand. But this is it in terms of his discourse to the watching and inquiring world, to would-be followers of him. This is how Jesus sums up his ministry in his way. And it's incredibly challenging. I'll say that. We are drawn to Jesus, and at the same time, we're deeply challenged by Jesus. Jesus is this loving, life-giving Savior. He is a wise teacher. He is a miracle worker and a healer. He is a gentle king. And he woos us into his presence. And yet at the same time, as we listen to him teach, and as we watch him live an exemplary human life of obedience to the Father, he challenges the things that we hold dear, our comfort, pleasure, security, and so on. Because Jesus, as we encounter him, this life-giving king, we also are called to become like him and to follow him. And it's astonishing. It's something I think we're quite over-familiar with oftentimes if you have been in the church for a long time. We can hear these words and they can just go in one ear and out the other and make little impact or land. My hope and prayer is as we hear Jesus in this one of his final addresses to the world say these things, that they'll land in our hearts in a new way and call us to something challenging, yes, but beautiful, holy, and good. What Jesus clarifies in this address is that his way is the way of the cross. That is what defines his life. And we'll see, as we look at this, three dimensions of that way, three effects of that way, and then an invitation into that way as well. But we'll start first with the way, the way of the cross. Let's think about this a bit together. His popularity had increased as he raised Lazarus from the dead. And now he's prompted by an inquiry from Greeks who have come to Philip and said, Sir, we want to see Jesus. And I love that simple request. I think we should learn from that request of the Greeks. Do we want to see Jesus? To be in his presence? To hear his voice? That's what they desired. And they quickly fade from view. But it's their questioning through the disciples that leads Jesus to make this speech. 
And it begins in verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour for which he came, the means by which he will be lifted up and glorified, is pointing us to the cross, to his sacrificial death, the giving of his flesh for the life of the world. We always tend to think of death as a defeat, as an ending. And certainly as we experience death, and many of us have experienced that in close in ways in this pandemic, it feels, of course, very final. And it is seemingly the end. But in verse 24, Jesus gives a fitting illustration from the natural order that shows death not as the end, but as something that precedes life and fruit bearing. Truly, truly, I say to you, he says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The grain of wheat must die, be sown into the ground and then spring up to new and increased and multiplied life. Like a grain of wheat, Jesus will die, be sown into the ground in the tomb and then spring up to new and multiplied life that bears fruit. He does this in obedience to and love for the Father and in love for the world. And this death defines the way of Jesus. It is, of course, this death and the story leading up to it that is the climax of each of the four Gospels that we have in the Scriptures. The entire second half of John's Gospel just takes one week, what we call Holy Week, as we march with Jesus to Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and then uh, through the cross to the resurrection. This is the focus of the testimony about Jesus. And yet, the way of the cross, and this is where this text starts to get really challenging for us, is not just to define Jesus' life, but it is to define our lives as well. So he says in verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The parallel in the synoptics in Mark 8, 35, for example, says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What a challenge this is. If we love our lives, our comfort, our control, our selfish advancement, our worldly prosperity and interests, we will lose them, Jesus says. The implication is because if we love these things, they will prevent us from yielding to or believing into, surrendering to Jesus. But if we hate our lives in this world, and yeah, that's a strong word. Jesus uses it in other places as a way of providing a real contrast. It's meant to be a bit jarring. Our lives in this world, which are human life in its rebellion against God, in its autonomy, in its idolatry, in its pride and lust and greed and inquisitiveness and woeful self-centeredness. If we love that life, or if we hate that life, I'm sorry, then we will keep our lives to eternal life, for eternal life. To take up the way of the cross is to let go of our lives that are lived according to the values of this world and to be oriented to the will of the Father, radically so like Jesus was, on the way of love, love of God 
and love of neighbor. Whatever the cost might be. There's this lovely description of the faithful in Revelation chapter 12 verse 11. Which describes them in this way. For they loved not their lives even to death. They loved Jesus more than life, physical life itself. And in their fidelity to Jesus and the will of the Father, they were willing to give up their lives for his sake. This is what Jesus is calling us to here. We reject the sinful self-centeredness and preservation and advancement in favor of the way of the cross, the way of self-giving sacrificial love. And this is the central way of both Jesus himself and of the kingdom that he has come to inaugurate. To establish God's kingdom. This is how it works. This is what life looks like. And if this isn't clear enough in verse 25. Then look at verse 26. He continues. He says if anyone serves me. He must follow me. And where I am. There my servant will be also. We are to follow him. Well where is he? That is the question. Where is he about to be? And I, I think the clear and obvious answer is on the cross offering himself this great sacrificial act for the life of the world an act through which sin would be defeated and many would be redeemed and reconciled to his father and then and only then after he goes on to the cross and is buried does he rise again and ascend into glory and so I think we should hear that invitation to be with him in glory as well but the path to that glory is only through the cross-shaped life. He calls us to follow him to the cross. The focus here, of course, is on our following Jesus. It's on our imitation of him and his way of life. And that focus continues into the upper room discourse with his disciples. Chapter 13, verse 15, after he washes their feet, he says, for I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. And then in verse 12 of chapter 15, he he says, love one another as I have loved you. Throughout this ending of the gospel, we're continually pointed to the cross, but not just as the salvific act of God for us, which it is indeed uniquely so, but also as the model for our lives in this broken and sinful and rebellious world. We are called to take up our cross, to go where Jesus is, and to live a life of self-giving and sacrificial love. That is the call upon our lives. Again, the synoptic parallel to this text. If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself, that is to hate his life in this world, and let him take up his cross and follow me. Many years ago, I heard a a sermon by A.W. Tozer in which he described three characteristics of a person who is on the cross. First, he's only facing one direction. He's not looking back. Second, he's not going back. He has bid goodbye to the life before when he comes to the cross. And third, he has no further plans of his own. But God will give him the plans. To that, I'd like to add a fourth dimension here that he's not comfortable but his comfort is found 
in God alone. Going to the cross is handing over our lives to God and pouring them out for God and for our neighbors in this broken world. This is what it means to believe into Jesus. As he teaches here, again, this is a significant speech because it's his final speech to the crowds who are coming to hear him. Let's think about two examples of this way of the cross. First, the Apostle Paul. Remember how Paul reflects on his life. He says, I've been crucified with Christ so that I, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul so identifies with Jesus that he says, I've been crucified with him. This is signified to us in our baptism as we are united with Christ in his death and then raised with him in his resurrection. Paul writes in Colossians 3 that our lives are, we have died and our lives are now hidden with Christ in God. And in light of that, what Paul says is, I've given everything up. Everything that was of value in this world, life according to this world, everything that gave him honor and status in Philippians 3, he says, all of these things I've given up. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And his only goal is to gain Christ. And he sums up his ambition in this way in verses 10 and 11 of Philippians 3, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. To be like him, to follow him wherever he is on the cross. That by any means possible, he says, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is imitation of Jesus. First, his imitation of his death, his life on the cross, his going to the cross. And then to his resurrection and glory. Or consider from the history of the church, one of the Cambridge Seven, C.T. Studd who dedicated themselves to service in China and left for China in 1885 from England. Studd was from a wealthy family, educated at Cambridge. He was the best athlete of his day. He was uh, one who played cricket and was enthralling to those who watched him. But having been stirred by hearing D.L. Moody preach, Studd committed, recommitted his life to Jesus and gave up this promising career in cricket to be a missionary. He expected his family would celebrate his decision, but instead they opposed him and ridiculed for him, but he went anyway. And then shortly after beginning in China at the age of 25, he inherited a small fortune and yet resolutely gave it all away, trusting that the Lord would meet his needs and care for his work. He moved on from China to do work in India and then from India to spend his final 20 years or so on the field in Africa. His life was full of extreme sacrifices. So much so that some of us today might criticize him for neglecting his family and being too exacting. But we should let his sacrifice speak. His way of the cross. As Stud famously said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Paul and C.T. Studd, these are examples of followers of Jesus who hated their lives in this world, who were facing one direction, who had bid goodbye to the life of the past, who had no plans of their own, who weren't serving comfort, were very uncomfortable in ways, who took up the way of the cross. I wonder, what about us? This is such a it is such a challenging invitation. It's a loving one because it's the, the way to true and genuine life. But it does, it does great against us 
in the 21st century in America. But it's the call of Jesus. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am on the cross, there will my servant be also. So that's the way of the cross. Let's think about three dimensions of this way that we find in this text as we unpack it further. The first is that this way bears fruit. That's the point of the grain of wheat illustration. That if it dies and is buried in the ground, it springs up. It will bear much fruit. If it doesn't die, if it doesn't go to the cross, it remains alone. And Jesus is saying it's through the cross that my life is multiplied. And that many will come to know my father. And Jesus' fruit bearing is unique. But we also, as we take up our cross and pour out our lives in love, will bear fruit as well. Jesus returns to fruit bearing in John 15, a text that our LDI groups are studying today. Here it's connected to abiding in him. But how do we abide in him in this text? We abide in him, in his love, by keeping his commandments. By following him down this way that he calls us to walk the way of the cross. Think about Paul walking in the way of the cross. His life bore great fruit and still does through his spirit-inspired words in the scriptures. As many come to know Jesus through his witness. C.T. Studd in walking in the way of the cross bore fruit as well. How many thousands were brought into the family of God through his ministry and his sacrifices. He and his colleagues in Africa built churches that would seat a thousand people and they would be filled. And he would go into villages and speak to 2,000 people routinely. Upon his death in 1931 in the field in Africa, 2,000 natives attended his funeral. There was much fruit born from this life that had been turned over to the way of the cross. The second dimension, though, is that it leads to troubled souls. And this may be a little bit of a surprise to emphasize this point, but it's clear in our text. And I think it's helpful and humanizing in many ways to think about this. No flesh likes the cross. It is painful and uncomfortable and humiliating. We prefer the way of comfort and self-advancement. And Jesus, in verse 27, we get a glimpse into his soul as he confronts. He's entered Jerusalem. He knows what's coming. And he says, now is my soul troubled. To walk on the way of the cross is to trouble the soul. This is the Johannine Gethsemane. The version in the gospel according to John of what we get in the synoptic gospels where Jesus is sweating drops of blood and crying out to his father the night before he's crucified. There is anguish, genuine anguish. And here in a gospel where Jesus is depicted as resolutely walking to the cross victoriously. I have authority to lay my life down and authority to pick it up again, he says in chapter 10. We get this beautiful glimpse into the human side of Jesus. Now is my soul troubled. The way of the cross will trouble our souls as we live it in the midst of this broken and sinful world. Even Jesus will say to his disciples, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So as you seek to follow Jesus in your life, to walk the way of the cross, if you find yourself this morning troubled in your soul, 
wrestling and struggling, then I want to encourage you to take heart that this is an expected part of what it means to follow Jesus on the way of the cross. And think about our two examples in this way. Paul describes all kinds of trouble and affliction in 2 Corinthians 11. And then in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, he talks about wrestling with that thorn in his flesh that comes from Satan. He talks about the daily pressure on him from the anxiety he has for all the churches. Who is weak, he says, and I am not weak. Or C.T. Studd. He didn't just walk into the mission field and everything was glorious. Stanley Smith and Studd, both two of the, the Cambridge Seven, wrote to those in their native England who were thinking of coming to the foreign mission field just a few months in 1885 after they had gotten to the field. And this is what they said to any aspiring missionaries. Let them beware of thinking, now that I've made up my mind to this great sacrifice in going out, I shall grow in grace very easily. Temptations will be almost gone and worldliness will have no power over me. They continue, as a matter of fact, temptations are far stronger and far more subtle. This is our united experience. Later in his missionary work in Africa, Stud hit a low point after sending his son-in-law and daughter home because he doubted their commitment to the mission. After the tribal people routinely rejected the gospel in his home office, accused him of fanaticism and mismanagement. He wrote, Sometimes I feel that my cross is heavy beyond endurance. My heart seems worn out and bruised beyond repair. And in my deep loneliness, I often wish to be gone. That is a troubled soul. Walking in obedience on the way of the cross. And yet, in the midst of this troubling, there is a resolute obedience. We see it in Jesus in verse 27. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. In the trouble, he continues resolutely to walk in the will of the Father. Or for Paul, one thing I do, he says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. His eyes are fixed in that one direction and he continues forward. Or even for C.T. Studd. Who after writing those words, I often wish to be gone, said, but God knows best. And I want to do every ounce of work he wants me to do. So he pressed on. He stayed the course. So it bears fruit. It leads to troubled souls, but it also leads to honor. And this is the third dimension of the way of the cross. The end of verse 26, if anyone serves me, the father will honor him. We should be clear in the church that there is only one kind of honor that matters. And far too often, and this is a problem, we bring worldly honor into the doors of the church. But in this way of following Jesus, there is one source of true honor. And it, is, it comes from the Father himself. And as we take up our cross, it may mean shame from the world. Certainly for Jesus, it meant de dehumanizing shame and humiliation. And I don't know that we have a reason to expect that our crosses will produce different results in a world that remains in rebellion to him. But it produces true honor from our Father. So Jesus prays, Father... 
glorify your name. And this voice comes from heaven and affirms the soon to be humiliated son by saying, I have glorified it. That is, I have glorified my name already, Jesus, in your incarnation and in your life and ministry and miracles and signs that you've been doing throughout this ministry. And the voice says, I will glorify it again. That is through what you're about to walk through as you go to the cross, which is the moment of your glorification, the moment that the character and the love of God is on public display for all the world to see. I will glorify it again through your cross and resurrection. This is true honor. The approbation of the Father. And it is this that the cross secures for any and all who take it. Bears fruit, leads to troubled souls, and produces true honor. Those are three dimensions of the way of the cross. Let's think more briefly about three effects that we see in this text of of the way of the cross in verses 31 and 32. And first, of course, and uniquely, these are true of Jesus. And unrepeatably so. But I would argue that these effects are also true in our own lives as we take up the way of the cross as his body in the world continuing to manifest him to our world. The first in verse 31 is, now is the judgment of this world. In this instance, in the cross, the cross will show up and unmask the human way of self-advancement and preservation and idolatry, the defining features of sin that oppose God and the way of love. These features are present in every human heart. And they manifest themselves profoundly in the betrayal, arrest, and trial, and crucifixion of this most perfect and holy human being. That way of sin, that way of the world is exposed and judged and condemned and defeated in the cross and through the cross. And I would suggest that as we take up the way of the cross in the midst of this world, in the face of evil and sin, we expose the sinfulness of sin in the world. And bring it under judgment. This happens through our actions and our words as we declare Jesus as Lord. I think of Proverbs 25 quoted in Romans 12 about feeding our enemy when he is hungry and giving him something to drink when he is thirsty. And in so doing, heaping burning coals upon his head. The spirit-inspired cross-focused testimony brings about a judgment on the sin of the world. The second effect is verse 31 as well. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. There are no exorcisms recorded in the gospel according to John. Whereas there are many in the synoptics. And most of us think that that's because this one great exorcism is what the gospel of John is emphasizing and prioritizing. That as Jesus goes to the cross, the devil is cast out and defeated. Now we who have obviously lived in this modern world, we we know the atrocities of the 20th century of Mao and Stalin and Hitler and so many other examples of evil in the recent past and even in the present. It seems very much that the devil is still here. And that, of course, is true in a sense. But the casting out about which Jesus speaks is the casting out, and Augustine followed this line of interpretation, the casting out of the hearts of those who have come to him of the devil's rule and reign. In the hearts of believers, the devil is dethroned and defeated. And no longer ruling over us. 
He is, of course, a defeated power in the cosmos as well, but he still runs rampant in the world. But in the hearts of those who have come to Jesus, the devil has been dethroned. He can only pester us from the outside, but he cannot influence us from the inside anymore. His power is broken. And we are to live a, a free and wonderful life of following Jesus outside of his power. The cross has declared us not guilty, forgiven and reconciled to God. And we have been delivered from the domain of darkness, Colossians 1, and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. And this transfer is offered to all who would come to believe in Jesus. Now, as we live out the way of the cross, this devil casting out dimension is happening again and again. When people encounter the spirit-inspired love of Jesus through his people in word and deed, they are brought into the kingdom of God. And the devil is cast out of their hearts as well. They are liberated from his grasp and brought into life. After these two effects of judgment, there is a third effect given in verse 32. This amazing magnetic reality of the cross. Jesus says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Those are astounding words. I will draw all people to myself, he says. Many of us feel more comfortable like Augustine and Calvin implying that the all here means Jews and Gentiles or all kinds of people. And I think that's a fair way of understanding this text. But we do also, I think, should acknowledge that the text says all people and doesn't qualify it. And this isn't to smuggle in some kind of universalism that is a clear contradiction both to other texts in the Gospel of John and to other biblical texts throughout the New Testament. But we should allow the astounding claim here to confront us and astound us. There is a, a universal drawing that Jesus speaks to here. And I wonder how could it not be that when someone hears of the cross then they understand that the cross is a manifestation of the character of God and his great love for the world. How could they not be drawn? Yes, they may reject it still. But there's something magnetic in drawing in about the cross. And we see that working itself out as Jesus goes to the cross, is buried and then raised as people begin to flock to him. And this movement of his kingdom begins to grow and grow in the first few centuries of, of life after his death and resurrection. There will be a drawing. As Jesus is lifted up on the cross and as Jesus draws uniquely through his death, when we take up our cross in obedience to him, I would suggest that we too are drawing others to his cross. In the words of Matthew 5, they will see our good deeds and glorify our father who is in heaven. Or in 1 Peter 2, those who malign us as evildoers will see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. As they see us taking up the way of the cross this judges the world and its sin, casts out the devil and draws people to himself. These are the effects of this way that defines our savior and king. And we share in those effects. And yet I should say the opposite is true as well. If we reject the way of the cross and walk in the way of the world, we will not bring judgment on the world and its sin. Rather, we will join it. We will not contribute to the devil's banishment. Rather, we will be helping his cause and we will not draw others to Jesus. Instead, we will likely repel them. As was the case famously and sadly with Gandhi in South Africa. 
finally, the invitation to this way. And this is where Jesus ends his speech here. People ask him, they say, look, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? And they understood some kind of departure from that phrase. We're not exactly sure what they understood. But they also knew the promises about the Messiah coming back and remaining forever. They expected this nationalist uh, rescuing Messiah who would set up a kingdom that would last forever. How can you say that you must be lifted up? And Jesus actually doesn't answer their question. He doesn't see a need. He instead issues an invitation. The light is among you for a little while longer, verse 35. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe the light, in the light, that you may become sons of light. This is the invitation, and we get the sense from this invitation that Jesus is saying, the sun is setting, and you, my hearers, this crowd, embrace me, he says, that you might not walk in darkness and stumble and not know over what you stumble. Light and darkness are, of course, familiar themes to us in the gospel up to this point. And Jesus picks them up again here to appeal to his hearers, while you have the light, while you're hearing him speak and give this invitation, while you're considering me, he says, Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. To become a son of light is to take up the cross in our own lives. It's to hate our lives in this world that we might have them to eternal life. It is to follow Jesus to where he has gone, to the cross and then to glory. It is to no longer be in control of our lives. And Jesus invites his hearers into this way. His eye is always on this goal. This is why he came. He came to draw us into his way, into his life, which is the way, paradoxically, of the cross. But this is why he's here. He wants us to believe. And the implication of his invitation is the light may set. The darkness may overtake you. Yes, it is true that the light always shines in the darkness. But it's also true in some sense that we can become so hardened, so blinded, that we no longer see. So Jesus is saying, while you're listening to me, while you're inquiring, while you're curious, maybe your mind has caused you to think again about what this whole Christianity thing is. Maybe your circumstances have become such that it's caused a crack in thinking that you knew what the world was all about and what the purpose of life really was. And maybe you've tuned in because you just know that something might be out there that's different than what the world is telling you is the way to find life. And Jesus is saying, as you're listening, come to believe. That opportunity may not always remain. The door may shut. The light may, the sun may set. Listen now. Learn now. Come now. Believe into him now. That's what he's appealing to the crowd with. And there's an urgency in that appeal for him, for his hearers, out of love. And out of deep humility, he will go to the cross for their sakes. It doesn't come from above. It's not a condemning word. It's a loving and humble invitation to the world. And we hear even as Jesus speaks these words to the crowd that John is recording them so that any who would pick up his gospel would be exposed to the light of the Son of God and would come to know him as the Son of God and to believe in him and that by believing in him they may have life in his name. Jesus invites us into life, into this way of the cross, a way that bears fruit, a way that troubles the soul but causes still resolute obedience, and a way that lifts up 
his name. Will we, will we join him on this way? I pray that we would do so. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you and we worship you for directing us to the cross, your unique cross, your flesh for the life of the world, how we worship you, the one who was lifted up and who draws all to yourself. Draw us again this morning, we pray. Draw some of us for the first time, we pray, that we might become sons and daughters of light. And Lord, for those of us who have known you for some time, I pray that you would rekindle in our hearts an attachment to you that causes us to let go of the world and to follow you wherever you lead, to pour our lives out in love for you and for our neighbor. Oh, Lord Jesus, be glorified, we pray, in our lives, in our community, in our city, in our nation, and in our world. Thank you. We pray this in your name. Amen.